This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. 240 years ago, on the 13th of March, 1781, William Herschel discovered the planet Uranus. Almost two centuries later, on the 10th of March, 1977, a group of scientists on board the Kuiper Airborne Observatory made a new discovery about the planet. In 1977, today's interviewee, Jessica Mink, was working at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, along with her colleagues, James Elliott and Ted Dunham. On the 10th of March, they predicted that an occultation by the planet Uranus, where it passes in front of a background star, would give them a unique chance to look at the planet's atmosphere. What they actually found was something unexpected. The planet had rings. Jessica takes us back to the time as they were preparing to investigate the occultation. The job came through in late September. And I worked for Jim Elliott. And he had a small group doing occultations. Um, and he had, because there was a, uh, let's see, a Neptune occultation, maybe 19, not Neptune. Yeah, maybe Neptune in 1975 that they hadn't been able to get because it got every, they went to two different places to do this, do observations, and both times mm-hmm. that year it, it was cloudy. Mm-hmm. So he decided we're not going to do this anymore. So in 76, in the summer before I got there, they flew on the Kuiper Airborne Observatory for the first time. Um, Jim Elliott, Ted Dunham, and um, an undergraduate. And um, they observed uh, an occultation uh, by Mars, where they actually got a central flash. So the star was exactly opposite behind Mars, and you get a flash all the way around the atmosphere if that happens. And you can. I didn't know that. Interesting things. Mm. And um, Jim had an embroidered shirt that had the Mars central flash that he always wear for or for occultations. That was his lucky shirt. And um, we had a whole bunch of good luck charms that we had when we were going observing. And so I started in September. The occultation of by Uranus was going to happen in March, March 10th. We were going to go um, fly on the KO again. Um, it was pretty exciting. Sort of the end of February, I flew to, to California with our, my group. And we had this pretty good setup. So the way it worked was 
I did all the software and it interfaced with the computer, the flight computers to get the data onto our data recorder. Um, I didn't have to actually do the electronics. I just had to make sure I could read the data and follow things in close to real time. And uh, Ted made sure that the data system worked okay. And Jim made sure the flight did the right thing. So there's the three of us and we split off in the morning and go to three different buildings. I mean, what they called the cave where the computers were and talk to all the people that ran the, um, uh, ran the computers on the plane. And Ted would go to the lab where the, where the crate was. It was a big instrument crate that was flight ready. So all the screws were weird torque screws. They weren't Phillips head or straight. They were mm -hmm. torque. And I uh, had to have a special tool on. Um, and then Jim was off in the offices talking to the administrative people to make sure we were flying in the right places. And um, it was quite a, a thing to do. And uh, I had barely been to Cal. I've been to California once in my life. Mm -hmm. Never really stayed in one place. Um, it was act it was sort of fun though because all the people I also had never worked with a bunch of like scientific software people before so it's sort of fun to work with them and um, I sort of knew what I was doing pretty quickly but I could ask questions of everybody it was a whole new system that I was a um, Hewitt Packard computers because they would, were the only people that would certify them for flight altitudes they set it up so that we fly whatever altitude we have to fly at to be above the clouds. Mm -hmm. If you fly above 41,000 feet in a, in a C-141, um, you have to have high altitude training. Yeah. So C-141s had this problem that sometimes they have a tail um, door that they use for loading because it's a cargo plane. And it has been known to pop open. Right. And, and the plane will decompress. And this is not a good thing to have happen if you're very high up. No. <laughs> over 13,000 feet. So um, if you're going it, you're required like every, I don't know how many years it was, you're required to have high altitude training, which you get at a military base. I ended up joining two B-52 crews in their, their periodic high altitude training because they all had to have it. So I'm at the Air Force Base. I'm getting trained. You know, classroom where you learn disorientation, then you take you to the high altitude chamber and you go, um, the first thing you do is they slowly decompress you. And um, they take you up. And the idea is so, so you learn what your um, hypoxia symptoms are because they differ from person to person. So you get paired off with another person. One of them, you wears an oxygen mask, the other one doesn't. And you do things like play tic-tac-toe and count backwards from 100 by threes mm -hmm. and things like that. And then you're supposed to gradually see symptoms like your, your vision might narrow or things happen or you might pass out. Um, the idea being that you should see the symptoms coming if you're piloting an airplane. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a tail gunner as my partner. And tail gunners have a reputation. So I kept beating him at tic-tac-toe, like as I was being decompressed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if I really have a strong symptom. I'm a bicyclist and my, well, I don't, I live at sea level, but I, I bike a lot. And I did then especially. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that made a difference. Um, I was in pretty good shape. And, uh, and then the other thing they do is they take you up to 27,000 feet and then explosively decompress you. Mm-hmm. But you see what that's like. So when you know about when the oxygen drops in an airplane and everything, well, we got to experience that in real life, except mm-hmm. on the ground, which is a lot better than experiencing it in the air. Because what happens is the whole room instantly fogs up, like instantly, mm-hmm. and you can't see anything. So you, it's very disorienting. So it's really good to take that test and learn how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then I went back and we took off and we flew to, um, we did it, we flew, we were flying from Australia, which was sort of cool too, because I'd never been to Australia. I wanted to go there. So we, we flew to Hawaii the first day. Oh, and the other thing was the NASA pilots didn't really like to fly for more than four hours at a time if they could help it. Mm-hmm. And they were really good pilots. Some of them were like later people that flew the shuttle back and forth. Uh, um, and uh, so they they would fly us. We flew to Hawaii. So I'd never been to Hawaii. So that was my first night in Hawaii. It was, we, were in the, we stayed in the Hilton Hawaiian Village. I could look down on Waikiki Beach. It was pretty cool. The next day, we flew to American Samoa. And we sat outside the Rainmaker Hotel in the afternoon and watched the clouds form over the Rainmaker volcano um, and snorkeled on the reef, which was right next to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool. And we had a we had a meteorologist on the on the plane with us. And so he would tell us about the what was happening in the atmosphere. So we sat and talked to him, looked at what was happening in the atmosphere. He described it's really educational. And then we flew from there to um, I think to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I don't remember anything about Melbourne. And then we flew from there to Perth. And all this starts to blur after a while. And mm-hmm. um, in Perth, we had two flights. We had a test flight where we only went out for 10 hours over the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember whether we took data on, like just shot Uranus, Uranus by itself and the star by itself, which is where I think we would have done, but I don't remember what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be in Jim's book, but I don't know. And um, then we, we flew back, and I don't remember when I did what. Somewhere in all this time, I went to the zoo with a bunch of other people <laughs> and got to see kangaroos live in person <laughs> with grade school people who were got really these good demonstrations of um, we got to stand in a kangaroo enclosure and look at the kangaroos. So it was sort of fun. And um, then we had our big flight, which was 11 hours long, which was pretty long. Mm-hmm. We flew from Perth to the Kerguelen Islands. And we flew on this arc so that we were tracking Uranus mm-hmm. on our way out. And we watched the occultist. So the plan was that we would watch for quite a while before and quite a while after because we could keep because you were above the clouds um we could just um and we were going maybe we were just have total darkness for a long time that was the this episode is brought to you by twizzlers long day late night feeling a little bored twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day no matter what kind of day you're having 
the perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And was it just to get above the clouds was the reason that you needed to be in the Airborne Observatory? Well, also it was useful to be, if you wanted to be over the Indian Ocean for the best view of the event, it really helped to be in an airplane. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's two things. It, the clouds are really important, and that's a big, a big point. And because, um, I mean, I've tried lots of occultations, and I've had like lots of t- too many times when, um, like, there was a time I was observing a comet occultation in Central Florida, mm-hmm. and the sky was so murky that yeah. we couldn't identify the stars even. This is before you had telescopes that aimed themselves, but there were so few stars in the sky that we couldn't figure out where to aim the telescope. So I think we missed from that. And another time I was in, um, actually observing in, in, near here in our 60 inch telescope in, in the country outside of Boston. And um, we were looking, we we're doing multi-spectral observation and occultation by Aldebaran, I think. And uh, to see if we could see difference in, this, in the atmosphere, different wavelengths of the star. And um, it was a lunar occultation. And right before it went in, the clouds came in, so we didn't get to see it go behind the moon. And then right after it came out, the clouds went away. So we got mm-hmm. no data from the whole night of that, waiting for this It's morning. always the way. The second there's something really interesting, that's when the clouds yeah. roll in. <laughs> so anyway, so that's why you fly in the Airborne Observatory. It's a big deal to do this. It, it's got a huge crew. We mm-hmm. had to take like maintenance people with us and we had to have multiple pilots. And, um, it was a big deal. And, and the Kerguelen Islands are really far away and in the middle of nowhere. I finally, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference. I... I a meteorology conference, and I talked to somebody who actually had worked in the Kerguelen Islands and, and got to ask about them. <laughs> but um, it was um, really a lot of the trip was over nothing. And in fact, we went off, there weren't, wasn't as good satellite coverage in the 70s, and mm-hmm. we were unreachable for a while. And they couldn't, we, they mobilized, but didn't send out air sea rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, with the, that was the same area where um, a flight disappeared out of um, Malaysia, I think, the Malaysian Airlines flight. And you can sort of see why, because there's literally nothing there. And, um, and in the days before continuous photographic coverage of the Earth, you know, it was pretty. So we were lost for a while. And, mm-hmm. um, and then we had it turned around. So we watched it. We saw blips before we got to the planet. We saw these blips, and that was interesting. So we thought, "Oh, looks like there's a satellite belt or something." And what's cool about this mission is because the airplane is noisy, everybody has a headset with a mic, and everything gets recorded. So we have a there is a full recording of everything we said on the airplane that night including a lot of dumb things that I said. <laughs> but I did say there's a belt of, of satellites. And um, then we got the occultation of the atmosphere. And then it came out, got a second occultation, immersion, immersion. And then we saw more whips on the other side. 
And it was really cool because of the airplane, we had this long record of both mm-hmm. sides. Mm-hmm. And if we hadn't been on the airplane, it, we wouldn't have had the whole record because it was a lot of it was a lot of time. I don't remember how many hours, but mm-hmm. um, it was a pretty long time. So what was it that you'd been looking for in the first place? We were looking at the atmosphere. Because mm-hmm. there was actually a controversy about whether the features you would see in the atmosphere were caused by atmospheric structure or turbulence in the atmosphere. Are there dense, does the density in the atmosphere continuously vary or on the scale of a star radius, apparent star radius, are you seeing turbulence? So there were two schools of thought. Mm-hmm. The general idea was the more events you see, the more you'll figure out what it is. And um, there had been a, I don't even know what year it was, a beta, a occultation of Beta Scorpii, which is a really bright star. Well, it sounds like it would be a really bright star um, in by uh, Jupiter several years earlier. And the problem with Beta Scorpii it turns out to be that it's two double stars plus a third star or fifth star. And so when it goes through the atmosphere, you have very high resolution and you can separate all these different things out. So all the different spikes you see in the atmosphere as the occultation happens, there's actually five different occultations going on. And you have to figure out which you're seeing what of as it goes through and it's Mm -hmm. challenging. And I don't know if it ever totally got, there are a bunch of papers on that event. I did some lunar occultations of it to look at it later on. And um, it was complicated to do things with that. Um, but you can separate them out really well in a lunar occultation. And mm-hmm. it's trickier to separate the two close binaries, but you can separate out the three stars. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, but for ours, it was a single star. That was simple. The problem was that there were these um, other things that blocked it. Mm-hmm. And we had a chart recording, and um, there's a copy in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, but it's not our original one because our original one was too big um, to put in the display case and see something on it. So I actually played back the data with the chart moving slower, and that's what we put in the Smithsonian. But what happened was um, after the flight, we got we sent a telegram to the, inter, the Bureau, Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams, which happens to be, at that point anyway, it was down the, down the hall from where my office is now, and um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA, not the other Cambridge. We call that one the other Cambridge. They call ours the other. <laughs> anyway, um, they were first. We admit that. And uh, so we have a, so it's sort of cool because the, it was written down and then radioed in. And so that's when they got, by the time they got that, we were back on, and they knew we weren't lost and they called off the air sea rescue. We land and, and so they sent in, so it's sort of cool. So there's a, the, actually the handwritten note that the pilots read from is in the Smithsonian um, Institution in Washington, also in the Air and Space Museum mm-hmm. in a separate exhibit, but they're both there. Um, anyway, we landed, it was 95 degrees Fahrenheit on the runway. We had an air conditioner. Which is, is hot for our British listeners. <laughs> yes, it is hot for your British listeners. That's something you get, um, very often. And, and we were, um, I had to stay on the plane 
to like shut down the systems and everything and make sure, you know, steps, lock down the tapes, all these useful things with the data. Jim and Ted went back to Perth from the airport with the charts. And so I went back with one of the other programmers and um, later, a couple, I don't know, an hour later, two hours later. And I think I went straight to bed. They'd been up and then they went to bed. An 11-hour flight plus getting there and getting back. And we didn't really sleep on that flight. And, um, and so I had to work after the flight and then go back. And um, anyway, in the course of this, they had folded out the chart and then folded it back on itself and found out that the lines lined up. So they had that immersion the immersion of the planet, which you could fold over for sure. You know, that's going to be symmetrical. And then the other um, lines lined up pretty well. And so we found five rings. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, on the ground at Perth Observatory was Bob Millis and somebody from Perth Observatory, whose name I don't remember. Bob Millis was from Lowell Observatory in Arizona. So there's this MIT Lowell collaboration that has been still ongoing after all these years. Um, well, then it was a Cornell Lowell. Now it's MIT Lowell. And, um, and he got only one side, but he saw more rings um, closer to the planet. So there are alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon are the five rings we saw, and his rings are four, five, and six. And I think one, two, and three might be some of the rings we saw. I don't really know exactly what one, two, and three are, but I know four, five, and six are the rings they saw, which are real rings, but we didn't see them in our data because they're narrower and the pen just went, and we didn't see that. Um, I think we could find them in the data later, but. The chart recorder was not the real data. The real data was on data on magnetic tapes. Mm-hmm. So the, the chart recorder was just the, the, the sort of pen moving across the paper to show you what was happening. Right. But then you later a, had the recordings to go into later. Yeah. So I had a digital watch and I actually held my watch up next to the chart recorder at one of the events as a like backup backup. So we could see that there was a time when something happened. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so the the data on the tapes was time tagged. And um, the problem we had was that we didn't have a hard disk drive back in in Ithaca even. So we had to put things on cassettes, like they're, they're digital cassettes that are like audio cassettes because that's the kind of cassette there was in 1977. Mm -hmm. And um, they're built a little differently, but they hold 50 kilobytes per cassette, which is not a lot of data. That is not a lot. Because most pictures are now, what, 20 times that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's like not a lot. So so we have these, so I'm carrying, so on the way back, we had, I had a carry-on bag, which had like 10, nine track magnetic tapes like these are the big ones Mm -hmm. um, with our data on it and we didn't want them to go anywhere we wanted them to go with us on the plane and um, they barely fit under the seat 
and seats were had more space under them in those days too. But the 747 SP, which we flew back on from Australia, from Sydney to um, San Francisco, I called it the squished passenger. So <laughs> three of us sat in a row uh, on like seats A, B, and C on the plane. And Jim's like 5'10 or something. And, but Ted's 6'3 and I was 6'2. And our legs didn't fit. So we're sitting there sort of scrunched up with these mag tapes, which were really probably too heavy to be carry-on baggage, but he didn't enforce it too much. And we would have really pleaded with him if he didn't let us take them. Um, so we flew back commercial. And the, the Airborne Observatory stayed in Australia for longer. We were just the first part of it. And we flew back from um, Perth to Melbourne to Sydney to San Francisco, to Detroit, to Syracuse, New York, which is near Ithaca, and um, or relatively near Ithaca. And I have no idea how long it took. <laughs> we were going to stay overnight in San Francisco, but we, after the long, at that point, the flight from Sydney to San Francisco was the longest commercial flight. I think mm. it was before the Hong Kong to San Francisco flight, which was longer. But um, it was long, and it was longer than the flight, our longest flight, the 11-hour flight. This was like 12 or some, some up large number of hours. Mm. And so we just lost track of time. And um, so we, we booked our flights in San Francisco, and the only way we could do it was through Detroit. It was all weird connections. And, um, but it was just very strange to, to come back. And, and in Ithaca, it snowed the next day. like. A foot of snow. And uh, so it's weird to go from 95 to large amounts of snow really fast. Mm. Um, and that's that's the story of discovering them. And it was a really adventurous thing. And I was 25 when we did this. And um, I sort of look at the grad students now and sort of, I feel fortunate that I got involved in big discoveries so early. What was it like when um, you, because eventually Voyager flew past the planet yeah. in the 1980s. Right. What was it like to see those images coming back and actually be able to see the rings in person for the first time? It was pretty cool. Although what I was really interested in, I guess when you, when you do occultations, you're really interested in precision mm. measurements and um, distance. You look at, distance and intensity things rather than just pretty we don't have we didn't have pretty pictures the pretty pictures were sort of generated by artists and uh so it was uh it's sort of anticlimactic in some ways to see an actual picture of the rings it's a really fun thing to do and i never we looked at things after that and we sort of found out stuff um mm. but uh it was it discovering something is really exciting and it's really like um, a big to me it was a really big thing to get involved with mm. so it's 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 pretty cool I yeah. mean and so I so I never really wanted to do spectroscopy I wanted to actually do geology or something like rover work or something like that that was mm. my plan when I was applying to go to Cornell and I went off into this other field which turned out I had the right skills for mm -hmm. so that's that's where it's exciting. 
Thank you very much for sharing with us the story of, of your career and some of the highlights from it. It's been absolutely fascinating, Jessica. Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to talk. I've really enjoyed this and um, I learn more every time I tell the story. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.